0: University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. So uh, Sunday mornings, I get up early and... um, I go for a run every Sunday morning, and because I write full sermon manuscripts, I listen to my sermon manuscript while I'm running. I'm an audible learner, and so listening to that manuscript over and over again helps me uh, learn the message that I feel led uh, to, to preach. And I was running this morning, and I came across this really amazing sunrise, and I think we have a, a picture of it this morning, and, and I was just... Thinking on the sermon of the day, and I was thinking through the fact that today is World Communion Sunday, though technically last Sunday was World Communion Sunday, but I was out of town, and thinking of the beauty that I saw, the many colors and diversity in this sunrise, and realized in that moment that the sermon that I had written for today, because in fact, I have written sermon manuscripts through the first Sunday in December, And so this morning, I was sensing God calling me to preach out of a different passage. No sermon manuscript. Let's just open the scripture together. And the passage that came to mind this morning as we think on World Communion Sunday is probably Jesus' most famous story. But it begins in a very unique way. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 states... On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a fascinating question. For those of us that grew up in Christendom, grew up in the church, our concept of eternal life, we think of heaven bound once we die, but the true meaning of that word, as it's translated from the Greek, actually means life to the full. And so it's a fascinating question that this teacher of the law, this expert in his religion is asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit life to the full? Isn't that the essence of what we're trying to pursue in our life? I mean, every day we go to work, we do the things that we do, we raise our families, but in the very basic core of who we are as human beings, we're trying to find true meaning. We're trying to find true life. And so I think most of us can resonate with this question that he asks. And it says this in verse 26. What is written in the law, he replied? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? I think most of us, if we were given a litmus test of what it means to follow Jesus, what this whole religious thing is about, most of us would be able to regurgitate that exact answer, would we not? We know we're supposed to love the God that created us, we know that it's not just loving God. With just part of ourselves, but it's loving God with our full self. We get that. That's why we come to worship, that's why we lift our hands or clap our hands or we 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 praise God throughout our day. That second part we also know. We know we're supposed to love our neighbor. But I think the biggest crux of the matter is if you notice what the text says, it says, love your neighbor as what? As yourself. And as I contemplate the struggles of the church in the 21st century, as I see the many political and religious wars that are waging around us, I think the biggest problem is we don't know how to love ourselves. We're so filled with fear of others. We're so filled with fear of frustration. We're so disillusioned with how our lives did not turn out the way we want to. I'm sure if we open up the mic up here, so many of us could come up here and talk about all the ways that life did not go the way that we wanted. We didn't get the job we wanted. That girl didn't say yes on the date. (laughs) Maybe we didn't have children and we wanted to. Maybe someone we loved died way too soon. We're frustrated with things, our relationship with our children and with our family. We're disillusioned with life and that disillusion leads us to a place in which we truly don't actually love ourselves. We don't like who we are. We don't like the way that we think, we don't like the way that we think about others, we don't like the way that our body looks. We don't like the way that we speak. We we think we're limited in the talents and strengths that we have. And so this concept of loving our neighbor as ourselves is impossible because deep down we might not actually love ourselves. And so how can we truly love our neighbor? Unless what we think is love is truly just an expression of how we don't love ourselves. We treat other people in the way that we treat ourselves. And so we treat other people with fear and frustration and boundaries and hatred. So this whole religiosity, this whole concept of what it means to truly follow Jesus is wrapped up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We can't live into it because we maybe don't actually know what love is. We don't love ourselves and therefore we don't believe that God could possibly love us in the same way. But it says this in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going along the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. We know this story. Most of us could come up and regurgitate it from, from heart. So who are these two people that come along and and pass this man? Well, first is is, is a priest. Someone who had been the person that led worship at the local synagogue or in the temple. The person that would have made the sacrifices on behalf of the people to have God atone for their sins. This would have been the person that would have received the offering or the tithes from the people. This was a very holy person who had very important things to do. And because he had important things to do, he didn't have time to help this person on the side of the road. And so he went on his way. This is a Levite. This would have been a person, an expert in the law. Someone who knew the law, front side and back side, knew the laws that said things like, yes, if you touch someone else's blood, you are therefore contaminated, therefore you are unrighteous, therefore you cannot go to worship, and you have to set yourself apart for a certain period of time. But then he also knew the law that said to love your neighbor as yourself. He also knew the law that said that If there's a foreigner or stranger among you, you treat them as if you treat yourself and bring them in with hospitality and respect. And so this lawyer, this expert in the religious law, had to weigh in the balance a choice. Which law would he fulfill? And we know the law he chose because he moved to the other side. I'm thinking about religious rightness these days. We're so caught up in the concept of, of being right that I think we fail to be faithful. We're caught up in a church nowadays where we think that you have to lean one way theologically or another way theologically and there's no space in between. We see these fights that take place in our politics nowadays where it's all about religious rightness and religiosity has become a weapon within our polarization And even we as religious people, we want to do the right thing deep down, true to who we are. We want to be right, and we want to be faithful, and we weigh in the balance which thing is right in the moment. And we can be equipped with all the scripture, all the tools, all the things that we need, and yet when the moment comes, we have to make a decision. It reminds me of my beloved university that had all the tools and all the things they needed to put a whooping on the Aggies last night. Now, I will tell you a couple things. Number one, this is a very young Alabama team, and I did not have high expectations. You can't win it every single year. Secondly, Alabama lost the game themselves last night. It had nothing to do with the Aggies. And here's why. You have the team that has all the tools, all the equipment they need, the most talented players in the country. And yet when the time came to actually execute and do what they were trained to do, they failed in the moment. Just like what happens in our scripture. But look at what happens in verse 33. It says, but a Samaritan. So let's lay the context. What does that word mean, A Samaritan. Samaritan was a mixed breed of those that remained in the promised land during the exile and other nationalities. They were considered to be half-breed, unrighteous filth to the Jews. They were half-Jews. They were half potential of what God desired for them. And so immediately by Jesus introducing a Samaritan into the story, he's immediately polarized everybody in the story. He brought up the villain, the outcast, the marginalized, the person that nobody wanted to talk to, the filth and the unrighteous ones. Isn't it funny that no matter how old religion is, that we have the task of othering people? There's always someone else other than us. Someone else because of their race or their ethnicity or where they came from or their life experiences or their religious practices or their sexuality or their gender status or their age. We always find something to set someone else apart from us. To consider them to be half-breeds, to be unrighteous, to be unworthy of who we are as individuals. Religion has a really long history of othering people. I was reading recently, um, as a church history person, I was reading some documents recently of uh, the church movement in uh, the 16 and 1700s. I know sounds exhilarating, right? The thing you want to hear about on Sunday morning. Reading old manuscripts, you know. It was fascinating. Is it was manuscripts that were exchanges between. Slave masters in the colony, parish leaders, and church officials. And essentially what the manuscripts came down to was so many of the slaves were being brought to church and wanted to convert to Christianity. But guess what? The church leaders and the slave masters made a conscious decision to not allow them to convert to Christianity because you know why? If they converted to Christianity, they would have to follow the scripture that says that you must treat your brother in Christ like an equal. Therefore, removing, continue to subjugate someone in the name of faith because they knew it would lead them down a road they didn't want to go to. Religion has an awful case of othering people. And there's things that we don't want to talk about in the church. In fact, I had a former church member, after preaching a sermon on justice and, and against the racial inequality in our country, I had a church, former church member that came up to me and said, you know, I really wish that you wouldn't preach on racism. I really would rather you just preach on the gospel. And what they said was, actually, I think that if you don't talk about racism, that's going to lead to healing more than if you talk about racism. Let's go down that road for just a second. How many of us, if we had a horrible cancer diagnosis, would choose to say, "You know what? Let's not go get tra- has all kinds of issues that we have to deal with." Racism is just the tip of the iceberg. We have a long history of patriarchy and misogyny and exclusion. And if we think if we address those things, somehow they has always created lines in the sands, boundaries in which we determine who is in and who is out, who is equal and who is not. The Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they refused to let them worship in the temple in Jerusalem. They had to create their own temple based on their own resources, hoping that maybe God would allow them to worship God there. So when Jesus says, but a Samaritan... This is a very polarizing story. Look back at verse 33. It says, But a Samaritan, as he was traveling, came where a man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey. He took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Looked after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? Jesus asks. It's a fascinating story. We've all heard it a thousand times. And yet for some reason, we struggle so much with it. And what I was contemplating this morning is, this concept of that we know we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, and the concept that maybe the reason we don't love other people with equity and with justice and with inclusion is because we truly don't love ourselves. And so I think the first thing we have to take away from the text this morning is this we have to recognize that we are the man beaten, half dead, and left naked on the side of the road. Each of us. They're dying on the side of the road. And yet, the good news of this story is that God is the... Forms us into something new through the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. So before we can even consider loving our neighbor as ourselves, what I need you to hear this morning is God loves you. God loves you no matter who you are, no matter what you think of yourself, no matter how highly or how lowly you think of yourself, God truly loves you. And no matter how disgusting and filthy and half-naked and broken you are, God is right there on the side of the road, not stepping past you as some self-righteous religious person might do, but as a God who's willing to get down to risk God's own self for humanity. God loves you. Down to the core of who God is, is the essence of love. The Bible does not define God in these grandiose ways, but the, the times we see God defined in scriptures, what does John say in 1 John? He says, God is love. That's who God is. So can you see yourself this morning recognizing that God truly loves you for who you are? Desiring to transform you into something new from the inside out? And when we can see what God sees in us, then we can begin to consider if we can love our neighbor as ourselves. And our neighbor, well, that's just about everyone that we have been taught to disagree with, to fear, to condescend, to to reject, and to hate. That's who our neighbor is. That's why Jesus tells the story. It's not this cute and cuddly story in which we all feel good about ourselves later on. It's a story to remind us of just how challenging it is to be a neighbor in this world. And right now, our world is so full of hatred. It's so full of division. It's so full of self-righteous disdain and apathy to not bring ourselves to the difficult conversations that are taking place in our community, in our world. We are so focused on being right. Within our church community, we have division among us. There's relationships and people who don't see eye to eye, and we would rather pursue rightness in the sake of self-righteousness than to humble ourselves and to truly love each other in the way that we love ourselves. Our neighbor is the person that we fear, that we condescend. For my doctoral program, I was taking a jog in the early morning, and uh, I came across uh, the MLK uh, monument in D.C., and if you've ever been there before, it's a, it's a humbling experience, and if you haven't been there, let me describe it for you. So, seen in the National Mall, of course, you have the Lincoln Memorial at one end and the Capitol all the way down to the other end. And then off to the side, you have all these different memorials. And off to the side, overlooking the Potomac, is the MLK Memorial. And it's this, this grandiose statue that's been cut out of what looks like a, a mountain. And so this huge thing quotes from Dr. King's life. And there is King standing out from the mountain And etched in the side of his statue is this quote. Out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. Now this quote comes from Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, one that he spoke just yards away from this monument that would be built for him. And the full quote he says is, with this faith, we will be able to hew out Of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. And what's remarkable about the King statues is not just the many remarkable things this man said and and the monument to the greatness that that was MLK and what he means, not just for uh, the United States and not just for someone who is black, but what he means for the church. Here's a faith leader who transcendently and prophetically showed us the way into something better. What's remarkable about this statue is MLK stands there with his arms crossed, staring across the Potomac at Thomas Jefferson's monument. A monument built for one of our founding fathers, who also happened to be a slave owner. And these two contrasting images show us the possibility that does exist through God's kingdom that for the many things that can divide us, the many things that can cause us to keep our neighbor at a distance, we see the remarkable acts of a man who showed us that love and peace can bring us to a higher way. Out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. So this morning, as as we celebrate World Communion Sunday, we could easily put on this facade that we are multicultural and multi-generational type experience. But I think the prophetic message of this morning through Christ's table is there are so many things that divide us and yet Christ desires to unite us. And so my message this morning hopefully is a message of a call of repentance beginning with myself and also a message of love that out of repentance we begin to recognize the many ways that we fail to love our neighbor, the many ways that we fail to actually truly love ourselves. But a remarkable message of love that Jesus invites us all to the table. What's remarkable about Jesus is that he used uh, the table as a place to unite people together. We read the many stories of Jesus breaking bread with his disciples, but then we also read these stories of Jesus sitting down and eating with the self-righteous religious people. And then one chapter later, we'll read a story about Jesus sitting down and eating a meal with a prostitute or with a tax collector. We can't put Jesus into a box. Here is a God who transcends all of humanity's brokenness and division by bringing everyone together at a table. And so we come this morning on World Communion Sunday to celebrate and to recognize that the church is not something we own to ourselves. The church is the kingdom of God. It's the expression of Jesus Christ in this world. And it is a church that is full of people who don't look like us. And thank God that we can celebrate that. And so I invite you into a time of contemplation. A time to come to Christ's table this morning. Recognizing that in diversity we might celebrate. Recognizing that in our limited nature as human beings to love other people, Christ's love can can transform all that hatred and all of that fear and all that disillusion into something powerful and remarkable. Out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope, This morning, uh, we're going to take communion a little bit differently than we have been doing through the pandemic, and we're still going to do it safely. And so what we're going to do is let me give you a little bit of instructions before we enter into that time together. Um, We're going to invite you to to come down and uh, form a line and try to social distance from those that are not part of your family. And uh, when you come down, we'll come down. Everyone will come down this aisle here and we'll place in your hand uh, the bread for the morning. Uh, the bread was made by Omar and Celesta um, from its Honduran bread. Uh, and the story of this bread is found in, in your worship guide. And then you'll come over to the next station and we'll place in your hand uh, the, the cup for the morning. Now, we did take away the wafer. Sorry to disappoint some of y'all. Um, so it'll just be the cup that's here. So I want to invite you into a time of meditation, into a time of prayer. Um, and as you feel led... We're going to invite you to come down this aisle here, moving across the side, exiting. We invite you to not partake of the bread until you've sat down, and we will do that together as a faith community. So let's go into a time of reflection and contemplation.